For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 7, just verses 8 through 10. And I entitled this Responding to Moral Failure. Paul gives us kind of an explanation of how to deal with moral failure as it comes up in our Christian lives. Now, some of us may be new Christians. And one of the things that you need to realize right off the bat is that, you know, you're going to continue to fail. You're going to have problems. You know, you can't spend 20 years of your life uh, creating grooves and tendencies in your life and think that that's just going to get corrected in a year's time. And so one of the things that we struggle through as followers of Christ is figuring out how do we respond when we fall back into these old patterns of living. And Paul gives us some idea of how to do, deal with that. He says in verses 8 and 9, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. So, apparently, um, his previous letter, probably 1 Corinthians, upset the Corinthian people, because it was a little harsh. There was definitely an edge to it. And apparently he got word back that the Corinthians felt hurt by the way he spoke to them in his previous letter. And so he's explaining why he did this. He says, I caused you sorrow, um, even though I don't regret it. Now you think about in our culture today, you know, one of the worst things you can do is cause somebody to feel a sense of shame or to do something that will create negative feelings. And, you know, I have to say in my experience, I don't like causing people to feel pain or feel hurt by my words, either intentionally or unintentionally. But there are cases where we recognize bringing in negative feelings Causing people to feel tension actually can be a good thing if we aim to help them out. You know, I think about um, taking one of my sons to the doctor. And inevitably, he has to take to get one of the vaccinations that are scheduled. And so we go into the doctor's office and the doctor announces we're going to have to do the vaccination. And, you know, the doctor pulls out this big syringe, right? I mean, the, the syringe itself looks like one of those coffee stirs, pretty big. And so immediately, you know, my son is panicking. Uh, he's like a cat, you know, that's just trying to climb up the walls. He's hyperventilating. And, um, you know, there have been cases where my wife and I have actually had to hold him down as the doctor is giving him the shot, which was, you know, incredibly painful. And so I think on, you know, those experiences, and obviously I didn't enjoy that. I felt bad for him. You know, even when we left for hours, his arm was, was feeling sore because of the shot. But I realized that it was, it was important that he got this shot in order to avoid serious illness. And so the temporary pain and discomfort that we brought to him was really for a bigger purpose. And I think sometimes when we look at our friends 
who are veering off on this destructive path, there are times where we may need to speak truth and bring, um, you know, sorrow or create negative feelings in order to get through to them to help break through and, and so that they can actually change their lives for the better. And so Paul's aim here wasn't just to make them feel bad about themselves or to shame them, but he wanted them to break through and experience this biblical concept of repentance. Repentance in the Old Testament described a return back to God or a turning back to God. You'll see as you read through the Old Testament narrative that the Israelites would fall into this pattern where they would have moral failure as a nation. They would turn away from God. God would sort of allow them to reap the consequences of their behavior. And then finally, they cry out for God to deliver them, and then God rescues them, and they repent. And so they go through this cycle where they experience moral failure, God raises tension with them, and then eventually they return. In the New Testament, we see this concept of repentance elaborated where the Apostle Paul uses the Greek word metanoia, which describes a changing of one's mind, a reorientation. And so when we fall into moral failure, which will happen, it's inevitable, the question is how will we respond? Will we change our mind and see things the way God sees them? Or will we, we insist on our way of doing things, which often leads to destruction and um, you know, a life of sorrow? Now, <clears throat> The New Testament understands repentance as both this internal thing, but also as an external reorientation as well. It's not just like an inner heart attitude. It's also something that you see outwardly over time. And in some cases, it's gradual because our behavior is ingrained. But once God actually starts to transform us from the inside, we start to see change on the outside. For example, the... Um, prophet John the Baptist, as he was baptizing people, saw some of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of his day, and he called them out. He says, you brood or offspring of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see what he's saying there? That there is a fruit associated with this reorientation of attitude and thought. That what happens eventually is our, our behavior actually changes. And so it's a sign of true repentance. He goes on in verse 10. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So he creates really two points of contrast. He says, on the one hand, you have repentance that leads to salvation. And then, on the other hand, you have worldly sorrow that brings death. And in the context, he's not talking about our eternal salvation. Right? He's talking to believers here. Although, ultimately, if we want to have a relationship with God, it requires repentance. In this case, he's talking about something different. You know, when he uses the word salvation here, soteria, uh, this could also mean deliverance. So what he's saying here is that if you 
undergo repentance, if you decide that you're going to change your mind and listen to me, then you will experience deliverance from your moral failure. That over time, God will provide victory in this area that continues to plague you and cause you problems. And he says that this kind of repentance that leads to salvation leaves no regret. So one of the signs that we see from true repentance is that we're able to appropriate or apply God's forgiveness to our moral wrongdoing or our failure, and we're able to move on with confidence that God forgives us. You know, some of us, we're walking around with guilt that continues to haunt us, things that we've done in our past. And God says that that's not true repentance because when you experience repentance, there's a release that you feel, a freedom. You know, I was talking to a guy several years ago, and, um, you know, he was expressing to me how for just the last few years, he said, I just feel like something is just not right with my walk with God. There's this sort of distance that's sort of low grade, and I, and I can't quite explain why. And, you know, this guy, he's a mature Christian, been walking with God for, you know, nearly a decade at this point. And so we started talking a little bit about maybe what was going wrong with him. And uh, he said, you know, one of the things that just keeps popping back into my mind is this event several years earlier where I was in charge of the house bills with a, a number of roommates. And I was low on cash at the time, and I actually started using some of that money for my own personal um, needs, like, you know, gas and food. But then I would eventually always, you know, pay it back. But I felt so conscience-stricken by it, guilt-ridden by it, that I decided I was going to talk to my friend. And so I poured out my heart. You know, I was weeping about how, you know, how I had defrauded my brothers. And um, I have to say, even though I confessed to him, there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about this event. And so I remember talking to him and saying, you know, don't you realize that God has forgiven you for that? You know, when Jesus died and gave you this opportunity to receive forgiveness, at that moment, God not only forgave you for the things that you've done in the past and the things you presently do, he's also forgiven you for the things that you've done in the future as well. And so I pointed out that, you know, true repentance leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Pointed him to this passage. And he describes feeling true freedom due to this realization. And so, um, you know, this passage gives us sort of a glimpse of the kind of freedom and liberation that we can experience when we decide we're going to re respond or react in a way that God wants whenever we fall into moral failure. But I think one of the best passages that sort of gives us a depiction of what it looks like to repent is actually Psalm 51. This is a psalm that David wrote, and here are um, the notes to the choir director, which gives a little bit of context of why David wrote this and the circumstances surrounding this psalm. It says, A psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
So he wrote this in the wake of this tremendous moral failure in his life. Now, some of you may not be familiar with this, so I want to give you sort of like a little, you know, brief synopsis of the story. This comes from 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and King David at this time had solidified the kingdom. He was no longer running from Saul, the king at the time, who was out to get him. And so after solidifying the kingdom, he was able to just sort of relax in the capital city of Jerusalem while he sent off his general Joab to fight his battles for him. Now, one of the things that the Old Testament clearly states is that every king of Israel must lead the army of Israel out in battle. That was one of the the duties, the responsibilities of a king. And yet David compromised and decided he was going to stay back. And so after uh, a late afternoon nap, uh, we read that he wakes up and he goes up to his rooftop garden, his patio, And as he's looking over all the houses there in Jerusalem, he sees this beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba. And so he takes an interest in her. And he calls his attendant and he says, who's that woman? And the attendant says, that's Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite's wife. Now a little bit of background on Uriah. Uriah actually was one of David's mighty men. These guys were like elite soldiers in Israel. There were 37 men. And these were really the guys who protected David as he was running, fleeing from Saul uh, as Saul was pursuing him. And so it's likely that David had a really close relationship with, with Uriah, the Hittite. And yet he was undeterred. He said, go and get her for me. And so he brought her to the palace and slept with her. Now, <clears throat> you know, sometime later he finds out that Bathsheba was actually pregnant with his child. And so in a moment of panic, he decides, what should I do in this situation? He decides he's going to cover it up. And so he sends a message to Joab, his general, saying, call back Uriah the Hittite from the, from the battlefield and tell him to come to the capital city. And so Uriah shows up and David says, why don't you uh, relax? Go home. Spend some time with your wife. And, you know, his intentions are clear. He's like, you know, you've been at battle for a few years. You should go home, relax. Your beautiful wife is waiting for you. I'm sure he sent over a little gift basket, you know, containing a bottle of wine and a Barry White CD. <laughs> it's clear what he was trying to get Uriah to do. And so he wakes up, David wakes up the next morning, and guess what happens? Uriah is sleeping at the palace gate. He refuses to go home. So David calls him back into the palace and says, so why didn't you go back to your your home and and spend time and sleep with your wife? And he says, how can I do that and be disloyal to the army of God while my brothers are out fighting in the field? How can I enjoy myself here at home? You know what the real irony was? Guess Guess where he got that value from David himself. When they were out campaigning, he decreed at one point that none of my soldiers are allowed to sleep with a woman while they're on a campaign with me. And so he was being loyal to David and his word. And so what happens is David decides that he's going to redouble his efforts. He tells Joab, what you need to do is you need to send Uriah to the front lines where the battle is the fiercest. 
And we get word later on that Uriah dies. And so David takes Bathsheba and marries her. And so sometime later, when David thinks that he had gotten away with this, that he's, he was able to cover up this you know, moral failure in his life, this catastrophic failure, we read that um, God sends Nathan the prophet to go and to have a little talk with David. So Nathan comes in. He says, King David, I want to tell you uh, this story that I heard. I heard that this man was very wealthy and he had this large flock. And nearby his property, was, there was this poor man and he had this one little lamb that he loved so much and took care of. And so one day, the rich man's friend came from far away and the rich man decided, I'm going to throw a feast for my friend. And so instead of taking one of, the, one of the sheep from his own flock, he decides in the middle of the night to take the poor man's sheep, his one ewe lamb, and slaughter it. And David, indignant, says, that man surely must die for what he has done. He needs to die. And Nathan says, you are that man. Um probably the most convicting words the Bible has ever said, maybe ever. You are that man. Now, I want to take a moment to, you know, thank all the Nathans in my life. You know, the ones who care enough about me to speak truth into my life. Um, you know, <clears throat> I happen to marry my Nathan, um, which... <laughs> Okay, that kind of came out wrong. Um, but, you know, I think about it and it's, you know, God surrounds, he surrounds me with people who love me enough to speak truth into my life when I'm starting to, to go astray. You know, I wonder, do you have a Nathan in your life? Somebody who speaks truth to you? Are you a Nathan to somebody else? Do you... Do you resent the Nathans that God has put into your life? You know, often we feel a sense of appreciation over the Nathans that God has put into our lives at, maybe a year or two after they've done their work. And yet, you know, God sends people into our life because he cares about us. He speaks through people. And so, you know, when you look at this event, really this was a real low point in David's life. I mean, he completely blew up his life. I mean, if you could think of, you know, the worst possible thing you could do. I mean, David did it. And so, you know, you have to put yourself in his shoes. He's probably thinking to himself, how could I ever be king after something like this? How could I ever have credibility that I once had? Is God going to strip the kingdom away from me? You know, how could I ever live with myself after what I've done? And so David is really at a turning point in his life. How he responds really will become the difference between whether or not God will exalt him or whether or not he's going to fall back into failure and a destructive way of life. And yet what we see is that in the aftermath of all of this, God not only restored David back to his kingdom, but he learned more about who God was as a result of this experience. You know, that's the thing about moral failure that's amazing. 
God can take even moral failure and teach us something more about his love. So why don't we look at four things that Psalm 51 teaches us about repentance. I think the first thing is that David looked at sin the way God saw it. Look at what he says in verse 4. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, <clears throat> I think a sub-point to this is that you, first of all, you have to educate your conscience with God's truth so that your guilt represents true guilt. You know, when we talk about sin today, it's sort of an empty word. What does it even mean? We live in a culture today which is really adopted this concept of moral relativism. You know, if, if something is, feels right to you, then it's probably right. If something feels wrong to you, then that's probably wrong. And so when you leave the, the moral right and wrong up to the individual, then it get, becomes really blurry and confusing when you're trying to figure out what's right and wrong. And so one of the things that David says is he says, in your sight, he doesn't look to his own conscience to tell him what's right and wrong. He allows God's truth to educate his conscience to lead him toward what's truly wrong or right. <clears throat> you know, um, I think about, um, you know, all the different voices that tell us what's right and wrong. You know, you look backward and you look to your family upbringing and your parents probably raised you with a certain set of values, what's right and wrong. And so that has shaped your idea of right and wrong. Or maybe you look around you to your friends and your friends may influence you to see the world as in a certain way. And so you've adopted some of their values. You see certain things as right and wrong as a, as a result of the influence of your friends. Or maybe you look inward and you look to yourself and your feelings and that sort of tells you, okay, this makes me feel bad and so therefore that's probably wrong. And so our conscience then becomes sort of our guide. And so, you know, a lot of times when we do things that are wrong, we feel guilt in the sight of our parents. We feel guilt in the sight of our friends. Or maybe we feel guilt in the sight um, of ourselves, where we, we, we feel like we've fallen, you know, in our own standards. And so I think it becomes very confusing. You know, I, I heard this story um, where this author and, and um, teacher, her name is Rebecca Pippert, um, she describes how she was taking this graduate class in psychology at Harvard University, and during the lecture, her professor was saying how in this one case study, uh, the cognitive therapy that they were using was really helpful for this guy to, to come to some new realizations about his anger toward his mom. And so she raised her hand. And she said, so um, how would you help this guy if he told you, um, I want to be able to forgive my mom? What advice would you give me? And the professor said, see, the problem with that statement is when you talk about forgiveness, that assumes moral responsibility to which philosophy doesn't speak to. He said, you know, you shouldn't force 
this concept of forgiveness onto the client. He said, if, if you want uh, to experience or talk about heart change, you're in the wrong department. You know, to him, philosophy is a science. And science doesn't tell you the way things should be. They tell you the way things are. And so uh, when, you're, when a counselor says, you know, you should just really get rid of that guilt that you feel. They're making a moral judgment, which stands outside of what counseling and psychology should be doing. And so um, the question is, how do we orient our conscience? You know, because some of us, our conscience is very sensitive. For others of us, it's not sensitive enough. You know, in a lot of ways, our conscience is sort of like a smoke detector. You know, have you ever encountered a well-calibrated smoke detector? I haven't. I mean, you know, in my house, there are smoke detectors that the moment you light a match, it starts screaming at you as if your house is burning down. And then there are other smoke detectors that won't go off unless, you know, it detects the smoldering body of a dead person, right? I mean, um, it's so inconsistent. And likewise, you know, our conscience really is the same way, where a lot of times, you know, there are some of us who feel like our conscience is very sensitive to things. And it's telling us that things are wrong when maybe they aren't that wrong or aren't wrong at all. Or in other cases where it's not sensitive enough. And so, you know, in the case of David, what happened was he was steeped in God's word. He allowed God's truth to inform his conscience, to help him orient his thinking, to see reality for what it really is. And so that's why he says, I did evil in your sight. He saw his sin the way that God saw it. Secondly, you have to take responsibility for what you've done wrong. Um, <clears throat> you know, he bore the full guilt of what he did. After all, he says in verse 4 there, I have sinned and done what is evil. He admitted that he was wrong. You know, one of the things that happens whenever we fall into failure is that there is a tendency to want to justify ourselves, to minimize how bad things were, to talk about all the stressors and all of the circumstances that, that led to us doing this thing. It's interesting, David sort of did the same thing. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 25, after Uriah died, David sends this message to Joab. He, says, he said, tell Joab not to be discouraged. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. What's he saying there? He's saying... You know, maybe we're not really responsible for what happened to Uriah. I mean, after all, people die in war. He was a valiant fighter. He probably would have died anyway. And so he was making excuses, suggesting that it wasn't really that big of a deal. You know, uh, we have a really interesting way to find a certain point of view that hides reality. Um, some of us are already hip to this, but um, there are certain ways to sort of take pictures of yourself to put yourself in a better light. <laughs> you know, one of the things you shouldn't do if you're trying to take a picture of your face is you shouldn't really, like, you shouldn't angle the camera below your face 
because then it, it gives you sort of an unflattering look. It makes your face look a little bit larger. It's really best to do it slightly above your head and it sort of slims down your face. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, what, why are you telling me this? I already know this, right? <laughs> Another thing, you know, if you, if you feel a little bit insecure about your body, you know, whenever you're posing, it's best to put your hand on your hip like this. <laughs> Because if you put your arm down, it squishes the arm fat up against your torso <laughs> and makes it look really big. And so when you're posing, it's really important that you put it like this and it makes it look slimmer. You see, <clears throat> we sort of do the same thing, I think, with our moral failings. We say to ourselves, you know, if you look at it sort of from a, a certain point of view, it doesn't look that bad. It's actually right. You know, you think about two ethnic groups that are, that are committing genocide. And you ask them, you say, well, why, 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 are you so fiercely why are you fiercely attacking this other group of people? And they say, well, if you look at the history of our people, they have oppressed us for 100 years. And so what we're doing here is right. And so when you look at things from a certain point of view, it's easy to sort of justify our moral failings, to make it look less bad. And yet, look at what Nathan says to, to David. He says, you are that man and you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. He says, no, it's not that the Ammonites killed him. You killed them. You are the one who sent him out there. And so he wanted to make sure that David took the responsibility squarely on his shoulders. Not because he wanted to make David feel bad. Not because he wanted to make David feel shame. But he knew that this was really the only way for him to experience relief. You know, there's this old uh, analogy where if you decide that you're going to try to, you know, move a really heavy log, if you just try to grab it from one end and just flip it over end to end, you're not really going to get anywhere. It's important that you, you pick up the log and bear its full weight and then you can throw it over. And so likewise, if we want release from the guilt of our sin, if we want release from our wrongdoing, it's important that we bear the full responsibility of what we've done. Otherwise, it's going to linger. We're never going to feel that full freedom. Number three, seeing that we've sinned against God and God alone. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. And so it's important that we see that there is a vertical dimension to our moral wrongdoing. I think it's really easy sometimes to sort of feel bad about hurting the people around us. We see the damaging effects of our sin. And we feel bad. And maybe we'll even change our behavior in accordance with what the Bible says because we want to please the people around us. And yet, that change never really lasts. We find ourselves reverting back to an old way of, of, of living. And that's because there needs to be this vertical dimension of repentance where we turn to God and see that really, this is about me and God. This isn't about me just changing my behavior around some sort of code of conduct. This is a, a personal thing between me and God. 
But I think that there is a point here about um, how our sin impacts other people. Romans 13 verse 10 says, love does no wrong to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, one of the things that should prevent us from going out and uh, experiencing moral failure is the realization that there are people around us that we care about and we don't want to hurt them. And so when we love people, it overrides our desire to go do things that we know could damage our relationships and harm the people around us. Number two, joy often accompanies genuine repentance. Look at what uh, David says in verse eight. He says, make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. And then again in verse 14, he says, deliver me from bl blood guiltiness. Then my tongue will, be jo will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Now that sort of, that sort of seems uh, counterintuitive. How can you be joyful as a result of confessing and coming out with this sin in your life? Well, <clears throat> I think, first of all, there's relief from hiding sin. You know, it's difficult to try to keep up a lie, especially one that's really big and elaborate. Because then you start forgetting, who did I tell what lie? And so you find yourself sort of preoccupied thinking, okay, I need to keep my story straight here, otherwise I'm screwed. And so David underwent the same thing. He describes it in Psalm 32, verse uh, 3 and 4, which is a companion psalm to Psalm 51. And he says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through all of my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. You know, I can, I can totally relate to this. There have been times where I've done things and I've just kept silent about it. And I just felt this heavy weight on me. It just drained me. And finally, when I decided to come out with it, there was this sense of relief to know that there is a reintegration of my life. Who I was outwardly now matched who I was inwardly. That I was no longer pretending to be someone that I that, that, uh, wanted people to see. And so that's what David experienced. Also, it provides an opportunity to experience God's grace in a new way. You know, a lot of times there's fear. What if people really know what I'm like? If they only knew the things that I've done, they would just want to run away from me. Or they would look at me differently. And each time I've decided to just open up about the really dark things about my life with people, things that I've been ashamed of, I was always surprised to see just how gracious and loving they really were. And those are opportunities that God gives us to experience his grace in a deeper way. <clears throat> Number three, repentance doesn't mean repaying or trying to do restitution. You know, in some denominations, this concept of repentance really means penance. It means paying off the wrongs that we've done in order to sort of keep the, the, the scales of right and wrong a little bit more even. And yet, David says in verse 16, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it, and you're not pleased with burnt offering. You see, David realized that in the law, if you commit adultery, 
and especially murder, that the sentence is death. It's capital punishment. There are no sacrifices that you could give in order to repay God for that. And so he realized, I'm in a situation where I deserve judgment. And yet he says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And so he threw himself in humility upon God's mercy, knowing that there was nothing he could do to fix this. You know, some of you might be here and you might be thinking, the way that I get to God, the way that I get in there with him is by doing really good things and trying to offset the bad things that I've done. Well, guess what? God says that there's nothing that you could do to ever wipe the slate clean. You're always going to be guilty unless you experience true forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And interestingly, God granted David forgiveness. In Romans 4, verse 5 through 8, Paul says, people are counted as righteous, not because of their work or their good deeds, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Guess what he's quoting? Psalm 32. David's own words. David experienced God's forgiveness, even though he didn't deserve it. Finally, repentance requires accepting God's grace. <clears throat> In verse 1 and 2, David says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know that word there, loving kindness? That's sort of the Old Testament equivalent of our New Testament word, grace. It describes... God's mercy, his unmerited forgiveness. And so David experienced God's grace as a result of this, this incident with Bathsheba. He says in verse 9 and 10, he says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So not only did God forgive him, but also God gave him grace to be able to change his life. You know, David not only asks God for forgiveness, he prays for recreation. He says, create in me a clean heart. He realized that not only did he need to go to God in order to experience salvation, he needed God to change him. That there was nothing he could do to ever fix his broken self. And the same goes for us. Same goes for you. In the same way that you've received God's forgiveness by grace, nothing that you did, experiencing real transformation is something that only God can do. It's not something that you can do. And also, God answered David's prayers and granted him this forgiveness. In Psalm 32, verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You know, if you're here tonight, 
The bad news is this, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad about yourself, but the truth is you owe God. You've done things wrong that have offended him. And according to the Bible, we deserve judgment because of it. But God says in his love, in the same way that he forgave David, he'll forgive you too. God went to the greatest length to try to reconcile himself back to you. He sent his own son Jesus to come and die, to pay for the debts that you deserve to pay yourself. And in the same way, if we turn to God and confess our wrongdoing and ask him for his forgiveness, he will forgive us of our guilt and our sin. Uh, I guess we could just break up here, and um, why don't we just spend some time in prayer together? Yeah, Lord, I remember thinking that uh, Christianity was just this uh, religion that causes you to feel guilty all the time. And um, I was surprised after entering a relationship with you that uh, in many ways I feel a sense of freedom and joy uh, from guilt and shame that I used to feel. And um, we thank you that we're not fooling ourselves here. This isn't just therapeutic where we're telling ourselves that we shouldn't feel ashamed, that we're just really great people but that uh, the reason we can feel this sense of joy and um, this sense of freedom is because of what your son Jesus did for us on the cross. That there's an objective reason for us um, feeling this sense of forgiveness. And um, we pray for anyone, Lord, who um, might sense that you are calling upon them to experience this forgiveness firsthand. Pray that they would turn to you in their hearts and um, experience the forgiveness that David described there in Psalm 32. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.